It is a real blessing to be here. Um, I knew I had preached here, and I knew I had preached on Mother's Day. I couldn't have told you the year, but um, uh, it's good that somebody was awake during the sermon. And um, But it's uh, very good to be here and to worship with you, and especially this great cathedral outdoors. Can you imagine what eternity is going to be like when all of the redeemed will be together forever? There'll be no distractions, there'll be no uh, sore bottoms, there'll be no aching bones, there will be no distractions out there or in here, but we will be able to love and worship and serve the Lord Jesus forever and ever. And that's our desire, isn't it? We will not only be with him, but we will be like him, which is hard to believe. I tell my wife, I've got good news and bad news. There's a day coming when I'll be sinlessly perfect. That's the good news. The bad news, I won't be married to her. I'll be married to Jesus, and she'll be married to Jesus. Am I through already? <laughs> okay, thank you. Boy. At least there's not a trap door, I don't think. But uh, no wonder Pastor Steve needs a vacation. <laughs> well, if you'd like to take your Bible, if you don't have it open already, to the book of 1 Corinthians 16. Us older folks actually have Bibles. Uh, younger folk have them on their device. Uh, younger still probably have a chip or something in their head. And everything that they ever need to know will be found in that chip. But for us um, older saints, uh, we actually still have a real Bible in our hands. Before we uh, tackle this passage and look at it, let's bow our head once again and seek the favor and the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this day. We thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you as we live in a world that... Um, is constantly, as we sung this morning, broken and expressing its sin. Uh, for many of us, we remember when we used to be part of that. And in your kindness and your mercy, you drew us to yourself and you gave us a new heart and a, a new mind and a new way of seeing things. And we thank you that now we are able to look at everything through the uh, the lens through the glasses of the Word of God. And we thank you that that gives us ability to see things, not by sight, but by faith. We come this morning, we thank you for a new week that begins today. We thank you we can begin it by worshiping our Savior. We can begin it by worshiping with our brothers and sisters of like precious faith. And we can begin it by putting ourselves once again under the sweetness and the authority and the truthfulness and the power of the Word of God. In one sense, we're amazed that a book written at its earliest 2,000 years ago is the most relevant thing on planet Earth. And yet we're not amazed because it's the very Word of God. And we thank you for giving it to us, for preserving it down through history. It has been attacked um, in many, many ways, and it still stands the test of time. And many of us here have proven its truthfulness on our own lives. And so we come once again to be taught 
and to be changed, to be encouraged, to be stretched, to help us uh, press on in the present and look forward to a glorious day coming when there will be no more days, there will be no more nights, there will be no more years, there will be an everlasting. And we look forward to that with great anticipation. But until that day comes, may we be found faithful. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you've been saved for any length of time, uh, you've not only been joined to the Savior, but you've been joined to the people of God. And I don't know about you, but I know in my own experience that most of my battle scars have come from the people of God. I haven't been beaten up on the street. I haven't had a gang of motorcycle people come up and, you know, rough me up or anything like that. But I have a few scars from the church, from the people of God. And it's very, very tempting to say, who needs this? I'd rather have Jesus, but I'm not so sure I'd rather have his people. And uh, the Apostle Paul probably could relate very well. I've had the privilege of uh, pastoring two churches and preaching. I retired at the end of 2015 and we've been preaching uh, in the States and in the area. And um, I meet a lot of troubled churches. I meet a lot of weary pastors. I meet a number of dear souls who are pressing on, persevering, but it seems one step forward and about three steps back. But in all my 55 years of being a Christian, my 40-something years of being a pastor, I've never come close to being involved in a church like First Corinthians. An amazing church. There's uh, sexual immorality that not even the world condones. There are brothers and sisters taking each other to court. There are people visiting prostitutes and yet members of the fellowship. They're arguing over who's the greatest preacher they have ever heard. And some like Paul, some like Apollos, some like Peter, some like John MacArthur, some like John Piper. One or two might actually like the pastor. And the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church that in God's providence, he was the founding pastor. Many of the people who were converted were converted under his ministry. And yet this church has been nothing but a problem, nothing but a pain. And you can pick the spot, starting in the neck and working your way down. Yet he loves these people. And he'll write two letters to them that we know of, and he probably wrote a couple more that we don't know of. And he wants to tell them about the gospel, the good news in a bad news world. You'll notice in verse 10, chapter 16, that there is a phrase that Paul puts, he says, when Timothy comes in verse 10, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, just as I am. The work of the Lord. 
It's hard to believe, but this is the work of the Lord. Not only here in Thamesford, but all over this province and all over this country and all over this world. There are ordinary people who feel incredibly insufficient for the task, who are laboring in the mountains of Peru, in the jungles of Africa, even in Muslim countries, all over the world, they are doing the work of the Lord. Yet astoundingly, that work of the Lord is never mentioned on the news, is it? The CBC never has a special on the work of the Lord. Oh, if somebody falls, if somebody fails, if uh, they can expose fraud or whatever, they're glad to have a special on that. But the work of the Lord, they're not really interested in. Because it isn't a headliner news grabber. It, it isn't the thing that the world is in awe of and impressed with. Look at us, as Paul says in this book of 1 Corinthians, look around at the congregation. There's not many mighty, there's not many noble, there's not many rich, there's not many wise. When I was a kid, I was a baby boomer. And uh, to be a baby boomer, there has to be a lot of other babies that are booming at the same time. And in the summer, we would meet at the park, and there'd be 40 or 50 kids for pickup baseball almost every night of the week. And guess who was picked last? And out of kindness, one of the captains would say to the other, hey, why don't you have Don? Because, <laughs> you see, Don couldn't hit very far, and he couldn't run very fast. In the kingdom of God, God picks the dons. Not the mafia guys, but the, the guys that don't do very much very well. And he says, I'm going to astound you. I'm going to build a kingdom that is out of this world. And I'm going to build it through people who frankly have nothing going for them except Jesus Christ. And watch what I'm going to do. I was a relatively new believer. I just started uh, going to Bible College in 1968, uh, Ontario Bible College. And I was introduced to a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Anybody ever met him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he lived about a hundred years before me. And uh, he preached all these great sermons. And I remember reading a sermon where he said, can imagine somebody a great great builder who was to build a marvelous building and he did it with um, saws and hammers and levels and all that stuff you'd be really impressed and then he said imagine that same builder building that same building with saws with crooked and rusty teeth with levels that quite not on the level with Hammerheads that you swung it twice and the thing flew off. Screwdrivers, you know, where part of the end is nicked out. And he said, that is exactly what God is doing as he builds the church. He's taking tools that really don't work that well. So that for the eternities to come, we'll be in absolute awe about the work of the Lord. We'll never be bored. 
we, we, of course, if you're a good parent, you have to make a pilgrimage to Disneyland. And so we did that with our four darlings. We only went once. Because you see, by about the second or third day, it's kind of boring, isn't it? I know it's a small world after all. And I know there's pirates in the Caribbean. And I know there's Goofy and, well. But after a few days, you kind of... But not in eternity. Nobody's going to be looking at their watch and say, Man, when does the good stuff start? For all eternity, we will be worshiping the great carpenter who's built a holy temple out of living stones that were flawed, that were burnt, that were scarred, that were just a mess. And when he he's through with them, he will present them faultless before the Father with exceeding great joy. Now, if that's the end game, then we need to be involved in the work of the Lord. It's still August. In our church, uh, things kind of pick up the Sunday after Labor Day weekend. There's still a few people having vacation, which is fine. But, you know, Labor Day Tuesday school starts the next Sunday. We have Sunday school rally and the new teachers and classes and all that stuff. But we need to be thinking about the work of the Lord. Now, after Paul writes 15 chapters of this marvelous book, he then, in chapter 16, the first few verses, goes to the offering. <laughs> and you might think, well, he would have made a good televangelist. No, he, he goes to the offering because, as Oswald J. Smith once said, you know that a per God has a person's heart if he has their purse. And that's always stuck with me. God, you know that God has really saved somebody if he has their wallet. If, if they really mean, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. And so he's giving them instructions. He's managing money wisely. He's giving them instructions for the offering that's to be collected and taken to Jerusalem. And then before he closes off and says, everybody here says hi, greet everybody there with a holy kiss and all that great stuff. He says, I want to tell you about my plans for the work of the Lord. What we're going to do this morning and into this afternoon, if no, it won't be that long, what we're going to do is extract from this passage four principles that apply to the work of the Lord. Not only if you're an apostle, and I don't think anybody here is, the apostles are the foundation of the church, but if you're a believer, you were saved to serve. And you're to be involved in the work of the Lord. So four principles. Um, my children grew up with Sesame Street, so you've got letters and you've got numbers. The sermon is brought to you by the letter P and the number four. First of all, the first principle is the Apostle Paul plans the future. As, as Darren was reading the first part of the, the passage, he probably kind of thought, what, what's this guy going to say? Not Darren, but the guy that's so wonderful that he introduced. What in the world is he going to say here? I'm 
going to come through Macedonia. I'm staying in Macedonia. I'm going up here. I'm coming down there. I'd like to be with you now, but I'm coming later. And there's Pentecost and winter and all that. What, what, what is all this stuff? Well, we're not going to go really into the details of the stuff. But what we want you to know is that the Apostle Paul, although he's divinely inspired and led by the Holy Spirit in a way that no other believer can be led because he was an apostle, he plans out and maps out the next year of the work of the Lord. He has his plans. There are some of us who love to plan. My wife married a guy who makes a list and then makes a list of the list and, you know, a planner. Marlene has the great gift of stopping and smelling the roses, even getting stung the odd time by a bee. But that's life and it's wonderful, isn't it? And you put those two people together and you have a wonderful 48-year marriage. And there's some people who have the ability, but all of God's people are to be thinking and saying in this coming year, because all these details cover the next year. It's probably late winter when Paul is writing this. He's in the city of Ephesus, which is in the area of Western modern Turkey today. And he's telling them Corinth is in the area of Greece. And in a sense, he's going up north, and he's going to swing around and start coming south. And he hopes by the next year to be able to come and visit these guys and gals at Corinth. You will notice that in the verses um, 5 to 8, how many times he says, I, I will, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing the other thing. He has short-term and he has long-term goals. And I need to ask you, uh, what are you planning to do for the Lord in the next year? And you might say, well, I guess the same old, same old. If it opens up, I'll be part of the nursery. I'm in the coffee group, whatever it might be. And all those things are very important. But it is easy for the children of God to get in a rut and get stale and just kind of crank this out year after year and decade after decade and not really overly expecting the Lord to do much in the first place. And secondly, certainly not expecting the Lord to use you. Paul says, you've got a plan. And you've got to think, and you've got to say, what's going on here? How do I see the next three months, the next six months, the next three quarters of a year, the next year? What do I see, God? And I realize there's COVID things and fourth waves and fifth waves and waves at the baseball game and all kinds of stuff. But what are you planning to do? The Apostle Paul had plans, and if you read 2 Corinthians, you will find out that he didn't follow through on his plans. And they're a little ticked with him because he said he was going to come and visit, and he didn't come and visit. Well, he had real problems in Ephesus. It wasn't as easy as he might have initially thought, although he hints at it here. So, he planned for the future. And two things are involved in that. First of all, are his plans. 
He has places and he is time. I'm planning to be here. Pentecost is 50 days after Easter, so that's late May. He's planning to do this. He's going north. He's going to swing around. He's going to come down into Greece. Macedonia is north of Greece. He's coming down into Corinth in that peninsula there. They even had their own Olympic Games. And Corinth was a metropolitan city. It, it, it was a swinging city. It was San Francisco in, in 60 AD. But notice, he says, all of this is in the light of the Lord's permission. Did you notice that? In verse 7, for I don't want to see you just now in passing. He could scoot through and make a quickie visit and then go on his missionary tour. But he says, I want to be able to come and stay for a while. Obviously, there's a lot of problems here. And, and he wants to stay for a while. And then he says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. You know, the Apostle Paul believes what the Bible teaches, that God is sovereign. That uh, the action is going on here, but the head office isn't here. It isn't with the board. It isn't with the pastors and elders. The head office is in heaven, where we were reminded this morning that uh, the man from the tribe of Judah the Lion of David is sitting on the throne. He and he alone is worthy to open up the scrolls of human history and not only explain them, but to decree them and carry them out to the smallest detail. The Apostle Paul is very aware that ultimately God is calling the shots. I've, I've met all kinds of Christians who've kind of had it with the church. And part of their problem is that their plans haven't worked out like they thought they would. Who needs the grief? There are a lot of people who may never come back to church because of all this online stuff, which is great. Thank the Lord for that technology for the last year or so. But some people are saying, you know, it's a lot easier sitting there in my pajamas sipping a coffee than doing this. And we're a little bit ticked, a little bit frustrated, a little bit angry with God because it hasn't worked out like we planned it would. And we, we know too much to go native and just pack this in and said, who needs it? But we are practically saying, you know, who needs it? I served my time. I, I used to do this. I used to be part of the church. And the problem is that I'm a little bit frustrated with the way God does things. Because you know what I've learned in 55 years? With all the memos I've sent to, sent to head office, God has never sent back a note and said, thanks, Don. I never thought of that. <laughs> he says, thanks, Don, but we're not doing that. Because you see, Don, your problem is you have a very small vision 
You cannot see the big picture. You can't see what's in the hearts of people. You can't see what I'm doing on the big scene. And we're, we're going to do it my way. I, I've never failed yet from bringing a sinner from earth to heaven. And I'm not going to start failing now. But I'm to plan for the future, realizing that everything is subject to the divine permission of God himself. The second P is, well, Paul was planning for the future. He persevered in the present. There are some Christians who have kind of itchy feet. Ah, oh, man, this is okay, but let's do something. Let's, let's kind of, and, the, and they're kind of always, you know, they'd love to have one of these dream coaches that would help them to think big and dream big. And, and um, in verse 8, he says, but, even though I've laid out these plans, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And Pentecost is 50 days after Easter or Passover, so it's kind of late May. And, and again, Ephesus is no piece of cake. He, he's not in the, you know, the Mediterranean in southern France. And this is kind of neat. Pretty girls are popping grapes in his mouth and somebody's fanning him and he's writing his latest, you know, New Testament letter. Wherever the, the, the apostle went, there were problems and there were difficulties, as we will see. In fact, he says in verse Eight, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And then in verse 9, he says, For or because, or let me explain why. Two things are going on in Ephesus. First of all, there is incredible opportunity. Opportunity. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. One of our problems is that when we've been in a place for a while, we don't see that. We don't see the opportunities. We think we've worked this ground. We've done this thing. We've been here. We tried that. We tried whatever it might be, sports outreach with kids or ladies Bible study or whatever it might. And, and there's a tendency in all of us to be kind of discouraged and negative. And yet we believe in a God who works effective, effectually. He is a God in Genesis 1 when there was absolutely nothing. He said, let there be and there was. If you're saved this morning, God didn't have something to work with. What he had to work with was a hard-hearted sinner, even if you were sweet and nice. And God came, and Paul will say that in 2 Corinthians, he spoke light into darkness and made me a new creature. This God is able to take a guy like Saul of Tarsus, who's breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the church and he stops them at noonday you see at noonday both mexicans and eastern people have a siesta it's too hot and this guy is so determined to get christians 
He's just beating his horse like crazy to, to get to Damascus. And the Lord Jesus stops him, throws him on the ground and puts his foot on his neck. And he saves him. The salvation is so surprising that people don't believe that it's got to be a, a trick or something. Saul's just trying to infiltrate the church, eh? So he'll pretend he's a Christian. And they need Barnabas to come and, you know, check this guy out and see if this is for real. And you see, we look and we need to see that there are opportunities for God to effectively work. The problem is I look to see if I can effectively work. I have no idea how many sermons I preach. Do you know not one of them has saved a person? Not one of them has built up a sinner into more holy. It's only when God comes and makes that effective. Effective in the sense that it accomplishes what God first intended it to do. And so as we're in the present, planning for the future, we are to see and to seize the opportunities. And they're all around us. God isn't just working in India. God isn't just working, and we always think that God is working in other places, but not where we are. In my workplace, in my family, opportunities that are effective. The present has times of opportunity, but the present also has great opposition. Look what he says in verse 9. For a wide door for, uh, for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. <laughs> you know, the problem is, I actually think that if I do this right, and if I'm sweet and nice and have a shower once in a while and use mouthwash and am pleasant and listen to a few songs from the world and things like, you know, the world will like me and they'll see what a great guy I am. Well, nobody's going to get greater than the Apostle Paul. And pretty well every town he went into, they threw him out. And wherever you go to work for the Lord, you can expect opposition. In fact, that's why we're tempted to just back off and say, who needs this? Who needs this? Always problems, always problems, always problems. Apostle Paul says, opportunities and opposition are always together. You can't have one without the other. And I'm never to be intimidated or scared off or discouraged by the opposition. And, and as Paul's writing this, it's not the town council in Corinth who are going to make sure this guy never gets through the city gates again. The opposition is in the church itself. Isn't that amazing? There are people who were converted by the Apostle Paul who think he's a phony and a fraud. You can tell that apostle to buzz off. We don't care what he thinks, what he teaches, anything. And, and Paul is saying that there's going to be problems, there's going to be trials, but they are never to discourage me from pressing on and persevering in the present because God is at work. The third thing 
So he plans the future. He perseveres in the present. Thirdly, in verses 10 and 11 and 12, he plays on the team. Now, here's where we get kind of the difficult part, okay? You know what the problem in the church is? People. Isn't that true? There's a little poem that goes something like this. Oh, to live in love with the saints above, that would be glory. To live below with the saints, I know. Well, that's another story. Yeah. The, the, the problem is that God, starting with you, only saves sinners. The other problem is that the God who only saves sinners just partially sanctifies them in this life. My little joke at the beginning, the good news, one day I'm going to be perfect. The bad news, I won't be a member of this church. I won't be a member of my home church. I'll be in heaven. And what God does is, is he takes people like you and people like me and he puts us together and says the vital part of the work of the Lord is in terms of people. Now, we need buildings. We need the practical things of this world. Darren was telling me when the rains come, I'm to go through that door. We need shelter. We need protection and things like that. But you know what? All of this is passing away. Have you been watching the news? You've got 10 minutes to get out of your house. The fire's coming. And if that's true in BC or in Washington or in California, that's true for the whole world. There's the fire coming that will never be extinguished. The judgment of God's holy and righteous wrath. And the only thing that will last forever is people. Either eternally in heaven or eternally in hell. And we're in the people business. And the problem with people is that they're people. Isn't that true? It's easy to organize the nursery until the babies come. And then the baby's, mom, baby's mothers come. It's easy to have a, a great youth group until the youth show up. And Paul's aware of that. The most difficult part about the work of the Lord is the people part. But that is what God is in the business of doing. God is in the business of saving people. People who have nothing going for them. If we really fell for Darren's introduction there, okay, and I and my first wife wanted to join this church and I got up and gave you my testimony. I'm a really nice guy. I have a few faults, not many. And I went on and on like that. Uh, nobody would vote for me to be a member of the church. Why? What's the requirement to be a member of this church? You've got nothing going for you but Jesus. Isn't that true? If I said, I think I'm good enough to be in heaven, you'd say, 
to the lions. But if I say I've got nothing good that merits going to heaven except Jesus Christ, you say, yeah, those are the kind of people we want in this church. But then when I become a member of this church, I better act against my testimony. I better be a really nice guy. And the problem is we're put together in a so that God can work out his purposes of sanctifying us, making me less and less like myself and more and more like Jesus. Aren't you glad that God says, okay, we had four children, still have them. God says, you got four kids here. I picked them. And you're stuck with them for the next 20 or 30 years. And if you hang in there, then you'll be stuck with their grandchildren. And you had no say in any of those. You might even have wanted children. But God did all the picking, didn't he? And aren't you glad that God put you in a room with these four or five, whatever, kids, closed the door, locked the door, and threw away the key, and said, now you hang in there for 20, 30 years. And the problem is, we think that the work of the Lord has an escape door that when I've had enough of you people I can leave and even better when you've had enough of me you can turn down the mic now two met people are mentioned here verse 10 a guy named Timothy we know Timothy he's in the Bible a lot he's almost like a son to the Apostle Paul Timothy had a believing mother and a believing grandma and it seems like a non-believing father. So, from the time he was a little kid, he was taught the scriptures by his mom and his grandma. Now, today, the psychologists would have a, a wonderful time with that, analyzing it. Okay. But, whatever the truth is, in God's providence, people aren't the same, are they? Timothy is kind of a timid guy. Can you imagine Darren getting up here last Sunday and say, you know, we're going to have Don Theobald here last Sunday, next Sunday. Go easy on him, guys. He's not a bad guy, but, you know, go easy on him. And that's exactly what Paul's saying to the church. Look at Timothy's coming. Uh, when he comes, see, you put him at ease, for he's doing the work of the Lord. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace. Can you imagine <laughs> saying that? And, and you see, there, there are some people in the work of the Lord who are of a weaker personality. That doesn't mean they're less saved. It's, we're all different, aren't we? And, and, and Timothy is timid. Paul says, I've got nobody like Timothy in Philippians. When the, when the heat's on in the kitchen, most Christians look out for themselves, but not Timothy. What a wonderful thing to say about a brother or sister in the Lord. But there are some people who are of weaker temperament. And we're at this meeting, and why, why can't Timothy see it? Let's go. Well, we'll just outvote him. If this was a business, we wouldn't fool around like this. But then there's the other side, Apollos in verse 12. <clears throat> now concerning our brother Apollos. Apollos is one of the guys, he's got his picture in the foyer of the church at Corinth. 
There, there are Apollos people. Paulus, Paulus, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. Now, look what he says. Now, concerning our brother Paulus, I strongly urged him to visit you. And what did Apollos say? I don't think so. Can you imagine telling the Apostle Paul, I don't think so. I'm not going there. And you, you see, there's actually alpha males. There really are strong personalities, and they're strong lady personalities as well, aren't they? And, and you would be surprised what people clash over in the church. Where the piano should be, the kind of music we should have, the cups and the dishes in the kitchen, what should go on in the nursery, all and what color the nursery should be, all the different things. Look at the COVID. How many churches have been divided over whether to obey the government or not, to wear a mask or not, and I'm not taking a side, but boy, you're thinking by the time this is over, there's going to be a mess, isn't there? And a lot of it is because people clash with people. And the Apostle Paul played on the team. He was able to work with a guy like Timothy and a guy like Apollos. And he's the apostle. He, he could literally say, look at the Lord told me. Now, to be brutally honest, the Lord never told me anything outside of the Bible. But not so with Paul. This guy can play rough if he has to. Paul can be a street fighter. But he knows how to work with people and play on the team. And, and one of the great frustrations in the work of the Lord is seeing dear godly people. Who, who's more godly, Apollos or Timothy? Haven't got a clue. One guy can preach the socks off you. He's an eloquent preacher, a great preacher, Apollos. Timothy, if you're in a foxhole, you want that guy right beside you. Because if everybody's fled, Timothy will be there. Now, what does the church need? What does the work of the Lord need? And you see, we have to play on the team, don't we? And then the fourth P, we must pursue godliness. Verse 13 and 14, you know, the, the difficulty with the church is there's no other thing on this planet that's like it. We're always kind of trying to look at the world and its success. And if we can just extract some principles, how come Coca-Cola gets to every part of the world before missionaries do? Our daughter went into the mountains of Mexico as a nurse with another nurse and a team. They had never seen a white man before, a white girl. But you know what was there? <clears throat> All these kids with rotten teeth because they were drinking Coca-Cola. And you think, man, if Coca-Cola can get their product to the, all the nations of the world, what's their principle? So we can get the gospel 
And the Bible says, no, it doesn't work like that. You see, the church is not a business. It's not a sports team. It's not a local town council. Do you know what the church is in the business of doing? It's in the business of being godly. Not being successful. Not being profitable. Not being popular. But being holy. God has saved me as a sinner to be like his son. Romans 8.29 says, I've been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And much of that is in the bump and grind in the dodging car living in the local church. Notice what he says in verse 13, be watchful. And that doesn't mean keep your eye out on other people. It means watch yourself. Do you know what my biggest problem is? And it's been my biggest problem for 72 years, is me. The Lord had to save me from me. I didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't mess with girls. Decent student, kind of a good, obedient kid. I have no police record. I never owed anybody anything except the mortgage on the house. And you know what my problem was? I was convinced that Jesus Christ would ruin my life. That's high treason. I should be shot at sunrise. And God had to save me from me, and he's continually saving me from me. It's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And so I need to be alert to me. Have you noticed how quickly you get stinking attitudes? How easily you begin to twist things around so it's focused on you? Have you noticed in an argument when you replay it, you never lose it? It's amazing. In my arguments, my wife has never been right once. I have to stand firm in the faith. You know what we're about? Not the color of the carpet or where the piano or even if there is a piano or a keyboard or what. Do you know what we're here about? The faith. That body of truth in a world that's constantly talking about their truth. There is no truth. But I have my truth. And the Bible says, I don't think so. There is the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. I have given the truth in the Bible to the church to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And I'm not to stand against my brother or sister. I'm not to fight with them. I'm not to be contentious with the world. I'm not to be blowing up government buildings or anything like that. I'm to stand for the faith. The unchangeable gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm to act, and this is pretty politically incorrect today, but the Bible is more correct than today. I'm to act like a man. And most cultures down through history, the job of the men was to be strong and to protect the women and the children. I'm to use my strength, not to get my way, not to bully people, but to protect and to defend 
the, the weaker people in the congregation, both physically and the weaker people in terms of their faith. I am to be strong. I'm not to wimp out. I'm not to say who needs this. You know, we had a man who was the treasurer of a church in Burlington. He moved out to Binbrook to retire. I was his pastor for <clears throat> 18 and a half years. And then I went to another church. I had his funeral just a couple years ago. Do you know he never did a blessed thing in this church? And he said, I, I did my time. And I thought, what a way to stand before God and you're going to explain 20 or 30 years of retirement when you now, and he had energy and things, you now have the ability to do what you've always wanted to do. You haven't gone out and had to work all day at Ford's and then come home, gulp down some cold supper and go to prayer meeting. Oh, it's the work of the Lord. And what a great thing. I think you may know that song, Thank You. The people, when they get to heaven, will thank those people that went before them and were faithful in their generation. Aren't you thankful for that? For Sunday school teachers, for your parents, your grandparents, the neighbor next door, people who were faithful in spite of all that came in their way. We were at a funeral of a lady, and she was in her 90s, a dear soul. And I still got lots of time here. <laughs> I won't take it all, but um, in her 90s, a war bride came from Scotland, married a good-looking Canadian guy in a uniform. When she got back to Canada, she found out he wasn't such a great guy. He was a drinker and a gambler. In God's kindness, he, the Lord saved that man and saved her. Just the sweetest grandma in the church. Loved the Lord. Got this little spot. She was in her early 90s, little spot on her lip. Then it got bigger and bigger. Then it went into her mouth and into her throat. Never smoked, never chewed tobacco. The only guy she'd ever kissed was her husband and the grandkids, of course. And she died a horrific death. Her son-in-law, who was a missionary, did her funeral. A 45-minute sermon that you would have thought but we were riveted. Do you know what he did? For 45 minutes, he just read excerpts from her journal and the Bible notes along the side of her margin that she had written in. And they were all about how good God was and how wonderful and how loving and how kind and how sweet. And she was amazed that he saved her. And she just delighted in the promises of God. This is a gospel that is going to stand the test of time. There's a day coming when all of this will be gone, except every person since Adam and Eve who's ever lived. We're to be busy with the work of the Lord, aren't we? And, and, and we are to be strong in that work by the grace of God. We sang it this morning. It's not me. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the four Ps, I won't quiz you. I should, but I won't. First one, he planned for the future. 
be thinking about what God's, you want God to do in your life in the next year. He persevered in the present. Be thinking of what kind of opportunities. Is it the neighbor next door? Is it a phone call? Is it visits? Is it some of you probably make great apple pie or chocolate cake and stuff, muffins, whatever, and just connect with people and take the gospel in a natural way, not to be thrown off by opposition. This world is not a friend of grace. It lies in the lap of the evil one. He got to the church before you did this morning. Did you know that? He's never missed a service. Play on the team. Especially the people you find the hardest to relate to. You pray the most for them. We're all obnoxious to somebody. But we're to love the people of God. Jesus Christ died for that person. Jesus is going to hang with them for all eternity. You love them and you work with them and you work alongside them and you pour your life into them. And then fourthly, in all of this, you pursue godliness. We're not interested in the great truth community church with 3,000 members. We're interested in sinners going from sinners to increasingly bearing the likeness of their Savior. You see, we had four kids, and in many ways, the best part was those early years. But we wanted them to grow up. We wanted them to become adults. We wanted them to leave. We wanted them to now get married and have children and grow. And we used to mark on the wall in the kitchen their height at certain ages. Well, they're all shot past me. And we want the people of God to be holy. What a powerful gospel. That when people look at you, they say, boy, you, 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 you look like your older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.